Well, it's a privilege and joy for me to introduce to you our uh, preacher this morning, Cale Benefield. Uh, Cale is the son of Rick and Dana Benefield, and family members fill up the first two rows this morning. You would think it's his first time preaching in church or something today, but uh, it's, uh, it's great. I'm so encouraged by this young man to see, um, to see what the Lord's doing in, in this young man's life. Uh, it's a privilege. Uh, Kel was born and raised here. He's, uh, he will tell you Leonardtown Baptist Church and Redeeming Grace are the only churches he knows. And so this is where he's been. Uh, they came when Callaway Campus was planted, and he's, he's been here ever since. He is in his second year at Boyce College and uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's doing biblical and theological studies. He's actually working on a bachelor's and a master's degree at the same time. I don't know how this dude does it. That's what he's doing. So if he kind of looks glazed over, that's why. And so uh, he's doing that in Louisville, Kentucky. Boyce and Southern are probably the best schools he could go to because they only produce really quality people. Uh, and so um, I'm just encouraged by that. Uh, Kale, while he's in Louisville, he attends Sovereign Grace Church, Louisville. Some of you may know a pastor by the name of C.J. Mahaney. He's the pastor there, and so that's where Kale attends. And so it's good to share him with that ministry there. Um, last year, Kale served as an intern here at Redeeming Grace just, uh, just past summer, helping me with uh, some pastoral ministry and discipleship ministry, doing all kinds of different things there for us. So, Kale, I want to ask you to come. I want to pray for you, brother, as you come bring God's word to us. So come on up, and uh, we'll pray and uh, be eager to hear God's word this morning from you. Let's pray, brother. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for uh, just the privilege we have to gather ourselves together today. Uh, in anticipation of hearing your word. Lord, would you bless this dear brother? Would you fill Kale with your spirit now and just allow him to be an instrument in your hands for the good of your people and for the glory of your name, Lord? We thank you for your word. We know that it can never fail in our lives. And Lord, would you now accomplish for us what we need and for your honor and glory. Lord, thank you for Kale. May you use him now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Adam. Um, it's actually quite kind of you to um, open up this Sunday morning to a uh, young, average age, average height, bearded guy with glasses to be your stunt double today. <laughs> um, on a serious note, church, thank you so much for giving me, oppor- giving me the opportunity to come and walk you through the word this morning. Um, but I will be the first to say that even if I stumble through my first attempt at walking through Scripture with you, I would hope and pray that God's Word would speak for itself um, to you this morning. Um, also, in, in light of our time of Thanksgiving, um, I wanted to offer my thanks to you because um, being a part of this church for basically my whole life has been um, one of the richest blessings God has granted me. Do you, do you all remember when we have a child dedication and how uh, the church as a whole commits to raising up that child and helping that parent, those parents hold them accountable to the standards of Scripture. Well, I see tons of faces in this room who have kept that commitment, who have held firm to that promise, and I, I can't thank you enough for that. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us. You are gracious um, in every way. And God, I thank you so much for giving us your word, that we may search it out, that we may um, look to it for guidance, for help, and for truth, and for 
reassurance. God, I thank you for sending your son and for um, allowing us to experience what forgiveness of sins is like through his death and resurrection. God, may we look to him today. May we be uh, reminded. May we think about some things that we've never considered, God. Um, And may you be glorified through it all, Lord. Uh, May you speak through your own word that you have inspired long ago um, for the encouragement and the blessing of your people this morning. In your name I pray, amen. All right, if you could open your Bibles to 1 John 2, 1 through 6. This is going to be our passage today. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background of 1 John. It's an epistle to a group of churches. It's not to one specific church. It's meant to be circulated uh, amongst a few churches. Um, The first century church has been threatened by false teachers who have since left them, and they're now in need of some guidance and some some reminders from the Apostle John. First John is known for being a short but very deep description of what the Christian life ought to look like. Um, and John also in First John provides some ways to distinguish between true belief and false belief, and we're going to look at that a little bit later. Now, if you'd honor the reading of his words, please stand. The word of the Lord says, My children, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God bless the reading of his word. He may be seated. Have you ever walked into a room and wondered how you got there? Why am I here? How did I even end up in this place? It seems like every person that I know has experienced this intense moment of uncertainty. Like when teenage boys walk into the kitchen for a paper towel to clean up a spill, and somehow they end up walking out of the kitchen with a bag of chips anyway. (laughs) Or when a busy mother makes a mental list of all the things she needs to put in a baby bag. And then she walks into the baby's room and suddenly that list is gone. She doesn't remember any of it. I think that the recipients of 1 John have experienced something very similar. They're in this place after being tossed about by false teachers. And they, first of all, need to be reminded how they got there. And second of all, they need to be reminded of the truth that they first heard in the beginning. 1 John 2 is a sentimental address to these believers. And the main thought of these six verses is, Christian, be assured that you belong to Christ. Be assured that you belong to Christ. John does this in two ways. In the first part of the passage, he shows Christ as the one who secured 
your position and your eternity. And later he shows that those who obey are proving that they belong to Christ, the ones who keep his commands. Imagine you're a first century Christian who has recently converted to Christ and you're hungry to find out exactly what it means to live under this new belief system. Some of you remember the time when you first surrendered your life to Christ and the joys and the challenges that came with that. Those whom John is writing to are some of the very first Christians. They're in the first century after Christ's death, Christ's death and resurrection. And they're still learning a great deal of what it means to be exactly that, to be Christians. John seems to take a few precautions here. He wants to either address something that is already happening in these churches, or he foresees a little bit of what, might, what they might fall into, specifically the intense doubt of salvation on the heels of sin. Some may panic when they realize that sin is still very much a problem in their life. Even after they accepted Christ, they thought it would disappear. It may be said to say that many in this room have experienced that kind of doubt, and sometimes in very extreme measures, so as to even derail a new or a seasoned faith. That brings us to the first clarifying theme of this passage in the first two verses, which is living as sinners in the wake of a satisfied penalty. What comes to light in the opening two verses is that the believers standing, the believers standing before the Lord is secure in spite of isolated acts of sin. You see in the first verse that John is wanting to show lots of care for these people. He calls them my little children. And he's probably up in age now. Um, He might be 70 or 80. But he is wanting to show care for them even in how he says, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. If you've even but glanced at 1 John, it becomes very clear that it's an entire description of how a believer ought to live and the transformations that happen as, as a result of coming into contact with Christ. John is trying to give these people a roadmap of how to navigate the Christian life and how it works out. Thus, the purpose for this letter, even as we read it now, is to steer clear as much as possible from sin, which so easily entangles and entices us. In fact, by saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin, John is essentially saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you know how to obey. He, he wants to draw these people to obey the word of God and the commands of God. But he's not ignorant of the fact that we are sinners, that sin just overwhelms us often. He says, um, if anyone, but if anyone does sin, basically saying when you sin, because you most likely are going to, because you will not be perfected. In fact, he's not saying that there is opportunity to be sinless. He's saying that he acknowledges that though you and I are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, sin is still a present reality that has yet to be vanquished until Jesus returns. Though we're still capable of sin, what this text is encouraging us towards is to not fear the Lord's condemnation against those specific acts of sin. Now, hold on a minute, because this is not the time to say, 
phew, I don't have to worry about my sin because it does not affect how God views me. We're getting, getting to that because the rest of this passage shows the necessity of pursuing God through obedience and how that is essential in the life of a believer. The text then says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Friends, I hope that when you read this, there is great relief right on the tail end of this passage, right on the tail end of verse 2. When you or I, as a child of God and recipients of the gift of salvation, sin in the face of a holy God, Jesus, the one who has already sacrificed his life for us, stands between and pleads our case before God. Wow. This refers back to what Pastor Adam preached on uh, just a few weeks ago concerning the promised mediator. Just like Moses implores the Lord in Exodus 32, he says, turn aside your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Jesus speaks on our behalf to spurn the white-hot just anger of God. One thing that might catch your attention about this verse is that why does John call Jesus the righteous? It seems like an awkward ending to his title. The reason why is that not just any man can be the advocate. This person has to have complete audience with God, and in order to do that, he must be sinlessly righteous. Jesus, the Son of God, is the only one who can fulfill this role. Verse 2 is a further explanation of who Jesus is in relation to the saved sinner, and it shows how he is qualified, how he has these characteristics to be our advocate. It says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Just to clarify, the whole world here means simply that humanity was the focus of who Jesus' sacrifice was geared towards, as opposed to this small group of churches that John is writing to. It might be easy to get hung up on this word propitiation. It's a big word, propitiation, five, five syllables. But it's actually meant to be a beautiful word, not a confusing one. We can understand propitiation to be the wrath-satisfying sacrifice of Jesus. Some people claim that this word means the expunging of guilt, kind of the rubbing away of guilt. But I would say to that, if Christ died to make me feel better about my sin, then why did he lay, lay down his life for that? Why didn't he do something different? I'm convinced that the sacrifice of Jesus has done something far more. Through the shedding of blood, he has satisfied not only the penalty that hung over our heads, but he has also satisfied the wrath of a holy God toward us because God must punish sin. It is against his character. It is against his nature. Friends, Jesus is our advocate because he was first our savior and he, we live in the wake of his sacrifice. Is it not fitting that the one who secured your position as a sinner saved by grace also defends us and ensures our security for eternity? Not only did he lay down his life for you and purchase you, but he says, they're not only mine for that one moment, they're mine forever. 
There are some in the Christian faith who live in fear of losing that salvation. What a burden. They, they live in fear of thinking that this sin or that sin might strip them of their, their standing before God and they may no longer be saved. I think First John is a clear example that Christ is continually our advocate. He is always there pleading to the Father and appealing to his blood and saying, this one's mine and they're mine forever. We live as those who are free from the bondage of sin and those who are enabled to obey the one who has saved us. One illustration that we can look to concerning our life in response to this advocate and savior is the account of the woman who anointed Jesus in the presence of the Pharisees in Luke 7. Why don't you turn with me there to Luke 7. Luke 7, um, we'll, start, we'll start in verse 41, but up to 41, Jesus is having a meal with the Phar- a Pharisee named Simon, and there are other Pharisees with him. But while he is there, they're reclining at the table, and he's eating, and a woman comes to him, a servant, and she takes this expensive ointment, and she anoints his feet with it. And then uh, the Pharisees push back on that and say, why is she doing this? Why is she wasting, wasting this? But then Jesus corrects them very quickly. And he says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One, ho- one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, that 500 denarii. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then later in the passage, Jesus proceeds to forgive this woman of her sins. And that causes a disturbance amongst the Pharisees. But there are two things to note from this woman's actions and Jesus' response. The first is, this woman acted in humble reverence to the one she knew could save her. Should we not react in the same way? As we are on the back end of the crucifixion and the resurrection, we live post-resurrection. Should we not also respond in humble reverence to the God that we know can save us and, and keeps us in his grip, keeps us in his hands forever. Secondly, we must always remember that the word of God is powerful. He has the authority to not only forgive sins like he does in, in Luke 7, but he also holds the ability to continually claim us as his. That's how powerful his word is. There are a few ways that we can apply the fact that our debt has been paid that are essential for our flourishing and our growth. The first thing we can do is allow our hearts to be reminded over and over and over again how glorious it is that Jesus is not only Savior, but he is also our sustainer. He also sustains us. 
He has a claim on your eternal existence, and he is above the sin that only seems to jeopardize that standing. That's the great lie of the devil, is that the sin that you commit or the sin that heaps doubt upon you only seems to change your standing before God. That's why we have these thoughts of, am I saved? Am I really saved after I did this? And it's because the devil is inserting this lie that sin has the power to overturn that when it does not. Christ has the power to keep it firm and to keep your standing secure. Another thing that John's reassurances help us to do is fight the fear that your acts of sin separate you from fellowship and relationship with God. We can look directly to Scripture to find that sin cannot undo the love and forgiveness that Christ has granted the believer. Look to Romans 8. It starts out with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing in this world, under this world, above this world that can separate us from the love of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 56, the famous passage of, O death, where is your sting? This proclaims the powerlessness of death and sin because of Jesus. When feeling pressured by the weight of fearing God's disapproval, we must ask ourselves, who are we to call bound what Christ has already called free? Who are we to say that? I once had a trusted friend and mentor say to me, if you have sincerely asked God for forgiveness from any particular sin, you have no right to heap guilt upon yourself. And this kind of shocked me. I've never really heard it said this way. But he said, Christ has deemed you forgiven of that sin. And to call yourself guilty once again is to dishonor the work he has done in you. It is to, to doubt whether or not Christ has truly forgiven you. Many of us find ourselves buried by guilt of sins committed years ago or sins that we keep on asking for forgiveness, hoping that we'll one day feel forgiven of it. When in truth, that's not the way that God forgives sin. Whether you feel it or not, if you confess with a pure heart, he will forgive it. Be encouraged, though. You have an advocate that not only paid the full price for that sin, but he also stands before the Father and appeals to his own sacrifice every time you sin. However, this leads us to our next point. Before we, before we dwell on that too long, and there's great reason to rejoice in it, but before we dwell on it too long, we have to realize that in spite of the free forgiveness and security granted to us, we are still obligated to obey. In verse 3, John introduces one of several of what we call tests in the book of 1 John. John uses these tests to provide a measure of examination for ourselves. He does so through the difference between light and darkness, the contrast of the love of the world versus the love of God. And here, he does it through knowing God as opposed to not truly knowing him. We can call this test of knowledge the test of knowledge as shown through obedience. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. At first glance, this sounds a lot like John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thankfully, these books were written by the same person. 
And John is choosing to stress the relationship between love and knowledge with keeping God's commandments. Essentially, the text is saying that keeping the commandments of God are the outworking of knowing who he is. That makes sense. John MacArthur notes that we can understand the word commandments here as the precepts and directives of Christ. If the test that we have to take is about whether or not we truly know God, then our answer ought to be obedience. That ought to be, if we were asked, do you know God? It's almost as if words don't cut it. And that obedient actions are proof. And that's what John is getting at. What stronger evidence is there of someone knowing God than doing what he says? The person who keeps Christ's commandments knows everything that we just talked about in verses 1 and 2. He knows the weight of a mediation between him and God. He knows how important and necessary that is. And most of all, just as we talked about earlier, he knows that he deserves none of it. Friends, if it is truly the grace of God that has saved us, it has transforming power and is able to draw those who know him to obey him. It is able to do that. In his book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, which I would recommend for anyone in this room to read, he says, It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God. It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him who can testify to the world that they, know, that they have known God. My hope and prayer is that you can, with honesty, say that you have sought the Lord until you have known him and proved it to be true through your actions. The warning here is that Jesus, the righteous one, does not advocate for those he does not know. My friends who are not Christians here today, you are in a position that's very precarious. The only voice that is pleading your case before God is your own. And God will not pronounce righteous those who are not pronounced righteous by anyone else but Jesus, his son. Cling to the one who has paid your penalty so that he can proclaim to the Father for you that you are no longer condemned because of his sacrifice. For my brothers and sisters in the room, the glorious reminder here in 1 John is that if you have shown to be faithful by keeping his commands in light of his sacrifice for you, you have no need to doubt that you know him. In other words, only those who love God obey him, and that in and of itself is proof that you know him. Now, what are examples of obedience happening as a result of truly knowing God? What are some ways in which we display that? Well, the easiest example is baptism. Why do we baptize? Why do we even take part in dunking people underwater and bringing them back up? We as a body take part in baptism as an outward sign of obedience from an inward attitude of faith. We have been called by John the Baptist and Peter to repent and be baptized. And even more than that, Jesus says, go and baptize those who have believed in my name. We baptize because we want to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to. And this is one way of proclaiming your obedience. 
This is one way of saying, I know God. What greater proclamation is there than this here of brothers and sisters gathering together, thing, people who have very little in common apart from this room and apart from Jesus Christ. What a great picture of the example in which we are proclaiming, I know God, by not neglecting to meet together. On a personal level, evidences of knowing God through obedience can be very simple. Husbands, resolving to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, supportively submitting to your husband. Guys and girls, following through and obeying your mom and dad when they ask you to take care of the pet or help with the house upkeep project or even apologizing to that friend at school. Another way that we see this working out in our lives is through evaluation. Examine your own heart to see whether or not you are displaying your knowledge of God through obedience. This is not to foster an attitude of doubt. Instead, as Paul David Tripp would say, we are incredibly gifted self-swindlers. We can so easily deceive even our own hearts and confidently proclaim that we obey God perfectly when it may be far from the truth. It is beyond valuable to honestly evaluate your attitudes and actions, even if it includes putting it on paper. You could even extend this to those around you. Now, this is not to give way to a judgmental attitude because many of us are tempted to that and we ought to steer clear of that. But take your kids for an example, grown or little. If they have claimed to know Christ but are not acting in a way that reflects this, maybe now is the, t- the time to put forth a little bit more effort in making sure that they hear the gospel on a regular basis so that you can be sure that they are being exposed to who God really is. Friends, there are so many ways in which we can fall to either side, off of either side of this horse. We can say that we're doing fine and keeping the commandments of the Lord, or we can let a mountain of doubt just bury us and smother what Christ has accomplished in pronouncing us righteous. I think John here is showing his recipients and us that we must advance in service to Christ with cautious confidence. What I mean by that is we must be cautious because sin is a grievous thing. Sin is a direct strike against the character of the God that we proclaim. But with confidence, knowing that Jesus, your advocate, is the one who stands between you and the Father. He is ensuring that his sacrifice is proving to be fully effective, atoning for every one of your sins. And we must also stress that we are both dependent on Christ and empowered to obey him. We are dependent on him because we cannot obey him on our own strength. But we are also empowered to obey him. We are, we are given the ability to obey him. Without Christ, there is no hope of even keeping one of his commandments, much less all of them. The last section of this passage that we're going to look at this morning provides us with obvious distinctions between someone who only claims to know God and one who actually knows God and follows God. There are two kinds of people. There are self-proclaimed knowers and truly changed followers. 
We just saw how John has explained that the greatest proof of knowing God is keeping his commands. Next, he gives this stark contrast to someone who claims to know God. And then verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John may have had particular people in mind when he wrote this because the area of churches that he was writing to had experienced men who had left the church all the while still claiming that they knew God when their actions and their proclamations were not representative of Christ. These were some of the false teachers that were stirring up divisions and may have been teaching things that were contrary to what maybe John had taught them in the beginning. So he may very well be be aiming this at, at those people who have said, I know him, but have not proved it to be true. But this is where we ought to pause for a moment and say, just one second, before we think about that other person that you feel may make empty claims about their faith, make sure that you inspect your own eye to make sure there's no log in it, to make sure that this passage is not speaking of you. We're so quick to point that finger when it comes to false claims, but how many times do you and I excuse ourselves from exactly what we need to confront in order to grow? Probably very often, if we're completely honest. The cause for concern here is that if we excuse ourselves of being all right when we are one of these people and has done, have done nothing to support our claims to knowing God, we're liars. No truth exists in us because we have successfully deceived ourselves about the most fundamental part of our lives. What does James 2.14 say? What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, if he does not have action? James is essentially saying that you can say, I know God, but until that faith exudes faithful action, it is completely empty. There's a massive difference between inwardly respecting God and the Bible and actually making the rubber of life meet the road of obedience. The scary thing about this phrase, and the truth is not in him, is that John uses this in a way to contrast a lying man and the God of truth. Now we suddenly see the great need for this man to go in between us and God is because there's such a discrepancy. How can the God of truth be known by a man or a woman of dishonesty? Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation three fifteen through 16, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If this strikes you, it is worth your consideration. But as you consider, know that if you have not known God truly, then he will hear every plea of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But it is not worth letting it go unnoticed. In verses 5 and 6, John describes what happens to true followers. He says, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He, Jesus, walked. Now, when the text says the love of God is perfected, this is not to say that our actions 
complete God's love. That's a little bit backwards. This is saying that our love for God is perfected or completed through our actions. First comes the proclamation, I love God or I know God. Then comes the completion, I am doing what is consistent with my words of saying I know God. It makes sense that if we as formerly sin-bound creatures can actually follow through with a command given to us by God, then we truly have known what loving and knowing God is like. Likewise, if we claim to abide in God, we ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? Did he have a unique gait? Was he pigeon-toed or duck-footed? I never got all the bird words, but Jesus walked in obedience. This is the way in which he walked. The Son of God is our model for obedience, but why is that other than the fact that he was sinless? Philippians 2, the glorious Christ hymn, right at the beginning of, of Paul's letter, describes the humiliation of Jesus coming to earth as a servant, which we just proclaimed this week that glorious moment when Christ came to earth. He obeyed everything the Father commanded, even the call to die on a cross. Scripture also says that Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. This is not like any obedience that we often see amongst our peers what we see most often is a legalistic keeping of the rules. Now, this is not to say that there are strong men mentors and church members and other Christians that are great models for us. But who is their model? Jesus is. Again, no one. No one can know God through disobedience. Matthew 7 is perhaps one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture. Christ talks about those who are proven by their fruits. He talks about the man who's, who built his house on the sand and he gets washed away. But also in verses 21 to 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father will enter. And then he goes on to say later, And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That highlights knowing God and obedience. He says, I never knew you because you are workers of lawlessness. On the contrary, Jesus will say to those who believe, I know you because you pursued me in obedience. You do not access the Father with a mouth of agreement and actions of rebellion. It doesn't work that way. He will not accept you. But you do access him with a heart of faith and actions of humble submission and obedience. To put it simply, obedience is the marching drum by which we learn to follow the one who saved us. He keeps that beat for us. He gives us his commands that we might follow him. Obedience is manifested as steps, or those little beats. And they often are what validates that faith, just as James talks about. Faith without works is dead, but faith is 
validated and proven with those good works. Do you know him? If God, through Jesus Christ, is truly the one who has resurrected from the dead and rescued you from death, paid your deep debt, and even now pleads your case before Yahweh, it ought to be evident in the whole of your life, in every nook and cranny, every area. And Christ gives us help to do that. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our love for God is on display when our true knowledge of him has manifested itself in obedience before him, but also before others. I mean, have you ever experienced someone who said, oh, I'm the best at this, and when they can't prove it, it causes you to turn your head and wonder, are they really the best at that? So also, what is it like when a non-Christian hears you proclaim, oh, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I love the Lord, and then your actions prove contrary? What does it cause them to do? Therefore, not only is it dishonest to the Lord, to claim his name and not follow through. It is also a terrible witness to those around you. Yet, for those who believe, we ought not live in fear of that. We ought not live in fear of disappointing God and injuring our witness to others because if we are truly relying on and throwing our weight upon Christ, then he will enable us, he will allow us to follow through. What does knowing God and walking in the steps of Jesus mean for us? It means thanking God even in the slightest moments of your obedience and the obedience of others. This is not grade school where when someone does what is right, they get scoffed at because it's not cool. This is real life in the wake of a debt that has been paid. Rejoice with your brothers and sisters when they follow through on a command of the Lord. Also, be encouraged when you are given the opportunity to obey and you follow through because that is Christ working through you. That's something to rejoice in and something to be glad about. That in and of itself is a miracle because as we said before, we cannot obey on our own ability. It is Christ working through us and the Holy Spirit enabling us. Another practical way is just be familiar with the commands of God. Sometimes we refer to God's commands or God's promises as this big blanket statement, but we don't know what those individual commands and promises are. It's worth pursuing. Any number of things can stick out to you from this passage, but my hope is that you would not brush them aside too quickly. Maybe you're a Christian and you've forgotten that sin is not who or what has the upper hand and that Jesus, your advocate, ensures your security before the Father. Oh, that you would be free of unnecessary guilt, which weighs you down and keeps you from experiencing the full effects of forgiveness. Maybe you're a Christian who has never considered the reality that an act of sincere and loving obedience towards a holy God is evidence in your life that he has not only saved you, but you are being renewed and changed into the likeness of Christ, God's Son, whom we again celebrated. Thank the Lord for when he allows you to triumph over a spirit of disobedience and ask him for grace when you do not follow through. Maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you claim Christ 
but have relied so heavily on the words, I know God, being on your lips, that it has not made it into your hands, feet, and heart, so that you may obey the God that you claim. Friends, it's far better to pursue Jesus in obedience than to hear him say one day, I never knew you, when you have been saying all along, I know him. There is grace nowhere else but the cross of Jesus. He bled on a tree for times of doubt and for deceived hearts that claim to know God, but whose actions are without any sign of faith and dependence. He will not reject you if you come to him and ask, Lord, how do I know you? How can I show I know you through obedience? May you be comforted by a God who is near and who delights to save those who call upon him for help from a pure heart. Let's pray. Holy God, you have given to us more than we could ever hope for. You have granted us your son. You have granted us forgiveness. And Lord, you you did not leave us to navigate life by ourselves, but you give us instruction through 1 John and through your word that shows us how, how do we pursue the Lord? How do we trust in you? How do we move about these days in reverence for you? And God, I pray that we would be caused to be grateful and glad for what you've done for us, for what you continue to do in sustaining us. Thank you, Jesus, for being that advocate and mediator for us and also for allowing us the ability to obey. Lord, may we, may we find joy in obedience, Lord, knowing that we are near the heart of God. And Father, I pray that if we have been proclaiming, I know God for years, and have not proved it to be true, Lord, that you would, you would rend our hearts, God, tear our hearts that we may be drawn to know who you are through the forgiveness of your Son and through following you through obedience and then being with you in eternity. God, you are good and gracious to us. Lord, forgive us when we fail you. Lord, help us to not heap that guilt upon ourselves that is undue but that we may come to your cross for forgiveness and know that that forgiveness is sure and definite and permanent. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise, God. We thank you for your word. In your name I pray, amen.